0: to Requires Improvement, a podcast which aims to critically discuss all aspects of the UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. I'm Anu, a prison education teacher and today I'm joined by Charlie. Hello. Tom. Hi there. Lee. Hello there. And Nick.
1: Hello. Um,
0: So this episode It's going to serve as a bit of a roundup of um the first year of this podcast because we had our anniversary recently um so we're going to talk a little bit about um the discussion of the main educational events that have happened in the last year um and arguably about what the most important sort of events have happened potentially in the last five months so we're going to focus a little bit on that as well um for most of us we're at the start of our summer holidays i think not me because i get civvy holidays sadly i don't have them um, all the nice holidays that you other teachers get um but yeah we're sort of like taking a breather at the moment and um well we've just got a lot to discuss um so the dust has settled a little bit on the black lives matter um protests that have happened um in in recent times so the big sort of toppling of Colston Um, we're sort of at a point in the pandemic where we have a bit of time to think about what's happened what's going to happen Um, and also well as teachers we're all just having a bit of a rest so it's a bit of time to think about things as well so um, I guess we can start off with um, thinking about Keir Starmer as um, our first sort of point of what requires improvement in terms of education so um, Keir Starmer uh, sacked Rebecca um, Low Bailey relatively recently which is obviously had, going to have an effect on us because she was um, our education guru <laughs> and she's been replaced by Kate Green so does anyone want to talk about this?
2: Uh, yeah Keir Starmer's is always on, on my mind um, for many reasons he's he's very attractive uh, he's he's knighted by the Queen. Quaffered. Um, <laughs> yeah, he is clearly a tactical genius as well. And even when he's doing stuff that looks really bad, yeah, you just have to trust that it's actually really good.
3: Four dimensional yeah. chess. Oh yes, yeah. I I,
2: I, th- I think at least four dimensions. Uh, did I no, say no. he was knighted? Five. Five. Did I, say, did, I <laughs> did I mention that he's knighted? It's actually at the start of his name. It's Sir Keir Starmer and then QC at the end. I think because that is how important he is. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, basically, the um, we were kind of excited and we, we kind of started to believe what what he was saying when. Becky Long Bailey got like a high profile thing like it in education and actually as a shadow cabinet role. And we were kind of like, I don't think we'd have won the victory that we won on June the 1st. I think we would have won it anyway, but it was harder. It would have been harder without her in that role. Um, and you can see this coming now. You know, they he clearly didn't want her there. It would have been, you know, the way that the Labour right is working at the moment it would have been something else it would have been tuition fees it would have been something they would have pushed her out of the cabinet at some point um, and it was just kind of it was just kind of ridiculous um, really i like, and and the bit when you're on the kind of if you're on the kind of labor facebook groups with the with the clps and you've got got people arguing oh no she was only fired it's not factionalism really it's honestly there were good reasons uh, she was fired because she refused to obey an order and all that, and all oh, she's anti-Semitic and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, well, they wouldn't have replaced her with a factional opponent of her, would they? Like um, Emma Hardy is in the education shadow junior minister team. She was like uh, an NUT uh, rep, an organiser and was a teacher and stuff. She would have been a person to, to replace uh, Becky Long-Bailey with, but they didn't. They replaced her with um, Kate Green, who is fairly unremarkable, fairly boring. I think her, her kind of the reason why they picked her is supposed to be because she's done stuff about um, women inequalities. So, like, the angle there would be like child poverty, which is like fair enough, that's, that's part of education. Um, but you can already see with her, like, the rhetoric is the, the triangulatory rhetoric, the kind of fear of the unions, like not wanting to be seen to side with the unions. Like, she's already kind of said when people talk about September. Um, She's already said something like Oh well obviously the teachers and you know the unions Are important but I think we should stand With the parents and the kids as well As if this is this kind of actual Dichotomy that's the kind of thing by the way that Jess Phillips said like one of the many Reasons why Jess Phillips is um, You know worthless idiot um, Is because there was a strike in her constituency And um, She basically said those exact Words I'm going to side with the parents And the kids (laughs) because They're my constituents too it's like Ah, you don't get it. Or if you do get it, you shouldn't be a Labour MP uh, because it's not how things work. And it's a false dichotomy I and it's ridiculous anyway. And the other thing that uh, uh, Kate Green's already said that has, has wound people up and is going to be a big issue in September is um, face masks. She said she agrees with the government line that no teachers should wear uh, face masks. And it, in my kind of like end of term inset, we're talking about safety for, for September. There's a couple of members of staff who really want to wear masks. Um, like I'm, I'm not a scientist, uh, or me- doctor or anything like that. I don't know how useful the face masks are going to be, but if you've got a member of staff who's saying I'm vulnerable, I'm happy to come in if I can do this thing, and you're still going to say no. So our school management is saying no at the moment. Like I predict this is going to be something we have to deal with. Um, you know, the Labour Party have said, no, we're going to side with the government on this. Government has said no. I I don't know what the the thing is there. I mean, I don't know what other people think about this. Um,
3: Um, I will just say briefly that um, I think everything the Labour Party is doing at the moment is designed to give me a stroke in my (laughs) mid-30s. (laughs) Um, And we could waste a lot of time with my opinions on the disgraceful treatment of Rebecca Long-Bailey and the weaponization of anti-Semitism. That's probably a topic for a different podcast. But like a lot of things, I think the Chomskyan method has some use here. It's useful to look at what the defenders of Keir Starmer are saying. Uh, they're talking about how this is about optics. This is about the long game. This is about restoring Labour's credibility. Uh, I just don't see it. Um, to people outside of Twitter and outside of internal Labour beefs, this doesn't look good. This doesn't make sense. Uh, it, it, it makes everyone look like shit from Keir Starmer on down. We're in a much weaker position now because we've lost uh, one of the only left-wing people in the Labour shadow cabinet. Um, it's just a shit show. What can I say? Um, you know, there's loads of other things aside from Rebecca Long Bailey that may, in fact, end up bankrupting the Labour Party. But yeah, let's just say the 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 dream of Starmerism is already dead for me and a bunch of other people. So I think it's already been it's already been raised that you know. La- the Labour Party ain't about to come riding over the hill like the riders of Rohan. They're not going to save us. It- it- unionism is the only game in town for now, I'm afraid. And by that, I mean trade unionism, not the other kind. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> any other thoughts, guys? Yeah, I agree with, with both of you. And I think, um, yeah, we're we'll obviously involved in any, we'll also involved in uh, late the Labour Party to varying degrees. And I was... <laughs> not optimistic about Starmer, but um, I, gave, I gave him a chance. I recognised how disastrous 2019 was and I can get the reason why so many members in the Labour Party felt a change of direction was expedient or strategically the right way to go. But yeah, I mean, currently, Starmer's only real tactic that I can see to concern is agree with the government and then add some little caveat here or there. So yeah, of course, schools need to be open. Of course, we need to get all the kids back in front of the classroom. But I don't know. Not on every other alternate Tuesday or on every third Friday, they get to wear trainers or whatever. I don't know what what the the tactic there is. I, th- I agree it's about this idea of credibility. And I think to go back to Rebecca Long Bailey, I think yeah, if it wasn't the issue of anti semitism that they kind of they got her with, it would have the next thing on the list probably would have been her unstinting support for the NEU. I mean, it seems to be whenever I bothered to watch PMQs. The unions is the thing that Johnson throws at Keir Starmer. And Keir Starmer looks a little bit sheepish and a bit embarrassed that the Labour Party has this historic connection to trade unionism. And he shifts about in his seat in his seat, and then kind of quickly moves on. So I think, yeah, we're going to see a return to kind of Ed Miliband era. Kind of, yeah, as, as you said, Nick, oh, it's, we're on the side of the parents who are all kind of equal stakeholders here and the union is a separate entity, separate from teachers. They have their their interests are diametrically opposed to those of parents and of students, which is patently absurd, really. But yeah, I think ultimately it's like, so what? This is this is what was going to happen. This was clearly designed for many people in the Labour Party. They have power, where they have influence, they have a voice, they have national recognition, they have the media, like, yeah, we knew, that, we knew that stuff anyway. We knew that stuff before 2019, before 2017. So the question is, yeah, just what do we, with what limited power we have, the power, the levers of power within the trade union, yeah, it's what we do really. It's not a thing to get kind of angry or annoyed about or spew out our anger on Twitter over it. It's like, okay, this is where we're at. What do we do now? And I think in terms of what we do now, I think there's lots of stuff we can do. And we'll talk a bit later about organising for power. But I think, yeah, it's not. I don't feel angry about Keir Starmer. I don't hate him. I think it's just this is what he was going to do. So now, what are we going to do?
2: I guess the the thing about in the PMQs that really annoys me, um, because yeah, Johnson always goes for the well, they're flip flopping, and that's why that's why their like credibility angle is so weak as well, because they because they're so like you know weak lemon squash on every policy. Like, you can easily accuse them of flip-flopping because there's no, like, firm ideas there. There's that. And there's also the union thing, like, attacking them. Oh, you're in a thought to the union. And it's so, it would be so easy for Keir Starmer to say this this line, and this comes from the Organising Power stuff that we'll talk about. It's like, oh, you're just listening to what the unions say. You just need to say, as a Labour politician, you just need to say, what do you think the unions are? The unions are the workers in the workplace. There's no separate thing Like Do you Like If you have a problem With teaching unions You have a problem With teachers You could just say that You could just Literally say that The NU has uh, Half a million Half a million members Up and down the country They're ordinary teachers And support staff Do you have a problem With them Like that That's literally What a Labour politician Could say But he doesn't He either doesn't get it Or he doesn't understand it And it And it is a frustration In dealing with With MPs as well Like i i Called up our MP because they say, "Look, I've met with unions." It's like, well, "What do you What do you mean? I've met with I've met with unions." It's like wh- you've met with like some people that work for the union, potentially one meeting. That doesn't mean that it's been signed off with you at all. Like, um, and I probably had to try and pin my local MP down on like what they meant about who they'd met, but it wasn't part of the union's democratic structure. Like, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. It wasn't speaking to. Um, actual members it was just seeing unions as a rubber stamping exercise which is like what our management see unions as it's what the Tories see it as you know begrudgingly a Tory might accept that trade unions have a role to play in health and safety legislation or like making employment rights being followed to an extent you know a right wing person could kind of agree with that Um, but like the Labour Party should be understanding that it's like literally the only power we have It's it's the only force we have and they're imperfect um, but we have to use them There's literally no other way for the left To, to, to get power really and, and, and just that line of like The unions are the members What don't you understand You know nullify that attack really quickly But I just don't think they want to cede any power um, in, in that way
1: Yeah I think that, that line there it's, it's perfect in that It's right in terms of principle And strategically it makes a lot of sense So then the only conclusion you can get from that Is that star malaxia, But any principle or any strategic sense, well, if there is a strategy, it's not one that I can see. So I, I suppose the big picture is he is hes a—he's a, he's a wealthy man. He's—he's a, he's a knight of the realm. He's a QC. His material interests are very, very different from mine and all of us. All of us here, his material interests are different from a teaching assistant or working class parent. So it's like, okay, that's 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 his outlook. That's he's entitled to do that. He's been democratically elected as lead the Labour Party to do what he wants. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going to lead to success in 2024. I mean, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but then even if he does get in, in 2024, what does that then mean for us? Does that mean massive improvements in education policy in Britain? Again, I, I don't necessarily see that on anything he's done so far.
3: No, uh, I'm afraid right now the Labour Party is in my mind uh, like uh, Richard E. Grant in the film With Nail and I, and he's just been caught drink driving, and he's saying to the police officer,
1: Raising you under arrest. That'd be ridiculous, I haven't done anything. Look here, my cousin's a QC. Get in the back of the
3: van! <laughs> Dated film reference. No one will get it, but there we are.
0: No one's seen it. Um, so I was just thinking, in terms of like. The switch from um, Rebecca Long Bailey to Kate Green. Are we are we saying like and with Keir Starmer heading up the Labour Party? Are we saying sort of that it's going to be as extreme as you know open season on unions, an anti-radical education agenda, or or just some or something um, lighter? Like what are the foreseeable issues here? Because I'm just thinking about well, what what were what would Rebecca Long-Bailey have pushed for and what we might now uh, be pushing against?
4: So there's been mentioned already about the fact that uh, mental health is going to worsen for everyone but I think that the focus at least uh, in the media has been about children's mental health and obviously that's exactly spot on because it will be but there's there's a different ways you can go about that so i already think that yeah the way that they are going to go about that uh yeah at least from the tourist perspective is going uh yeah to be the sort of neoliberal way that mental health is is usually supported with yeah um band-aid like measures that yeah short-term fixes that sort of thing the appearance of looking like you're supporting mental health without actually any of the actual uh consequences you know in that sense um that are meaningful for the children and for the educators and, and for the parents um i could list off loads of different ways they could do it but i just broadly that's what i predict um but the other thing that they've already done i think that's contradicted this um concern for mental health is i uh, it was a little while ago that i saw it but I, I it was already a hint and it just sounds so totally in line um is knowing that mental health is linked to behavior and they also know that it's going to be you know potentially a worsening of behavior in schools and um, already hints that they're going to be cracking down, and you know the already zero tolerance is going to be extra zero plus tolerance policies.
2: Minus tolerance.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> Minus tolerance. Like they're gonna they're gonna isolate before you even think about um, misbehaving. I don't <laughs> know. Former
0: minority report. Yeah. Pre-cog.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But these things do completely contradict each other and I think it sort of shows um, that hypocrisy and that, that lack of, um, yeah, authenticity and concern for mental health. And uh, what I predict is, well, I would predict that uh, whereas Rebecca Long-Bailey would have seen that coming a mile off and would be putting it in the public consciousness, the fact that these, uh, you know, two things being, sh- like, seen bad behaviour as a consequence of... Um You know the trauma that 's been caused you know people who might have or children who might have lost family members uh, maybe just like maybe even lost teachers or um, educators in their schools, but also just you know children feeling the the trauma that generally of, of the past six months uh something that they never saw coming it, it completely like uprooted their youth in a way that maybe they never would have predicted um it could and that's gonna cause bad behavior and yeah i think rebecca and bailey would have called that out the fact that um cracking down on behavior is just not the right response to that whereas uh is labor now going to agree with what the tories come up with maybe not are they going to really oppose it i doubt it that's my prediction
2: yeah i think you right because the you could see she's just got much better political judgment than Keir Starmer like in general and you could see when she first got her brief do you remember when she like pinged off that list of like 30 questions or something of all these things this other person does not have that it's all on the back foot stuff it's like reacting it's just like try and deal with it in the media fight the fire fight the fire don't say anything controversial then say something that no one could possibly disagree with I I watched the first episode of the thick of it um last night and it was like oh yeah this is what they're back to it's just that like pathetic like meaninglessness um of it all and it's so frustrating because at the start of lockdown i was like trying to be optimistic i, d- I don't know whatever what i was thinking but uh, i was trying to think okay maybe this is such an event you know it's such a key changing event that things are going to be different before and after it and i think that could have been true had because we were used to like uh, a Labour Party that was prepared to try and change people's minds about things, or tr- tr- prepared to try and like uh, try and look at the world, see the world that's coming to us that isn't even here yet, and do something about it. Um, whereas, like the current Labour Party, like so, SAT, you know, Sats testing GCSEs, the government wants them to happen in 2021 exactly the same. They don't want any changes at all. The exam boards private companies they'll do as little as possible they'll do it the cheapest way possible to continue as before Um, with a tiny bit of pressure from let's say Labour Party and trade unions you could get those GCSEs changed like radically changed but we're not going to have that because the Labour Party is just content to have opportunity after opportunity just whistle past because they've got a strategy in mind and this pandemic has been completely wasted because even, even on their own terms they're not Polling ahead, economically, they're we or whatever they are miles behind the Tories, like miles behind. They've not achieved any of the goals. they think like being credible hasn't worked. Like they're going to come crawling back for ideas at some point, and the only ideas are in the left. And like we just need to keep making those, um, making those things. If they don't cancel us all over Palestine, and um, this is the last thing I want to say about Labour before we like move on. Um, you know. One of the good things about the NEU is we do have a commitment to anti-racism, you know. Like, and I'm not saying the union is perfect; it's an institution and it has loads of fatal flaws and lets down its black members like regularly. Um, but at least there are like democratic ways of talking about things and like you know uh, our union is is quite proud of its solidarity with the with the suffering in Palestine. And um, you know you can, you can read uh, the conference motions from 2019. Um, you know this. This this is what the union believes on Palestine. You know, and we would support BDS, for for example. Whereas if you asked, you know, like a Labour frontbencher about boycott, divestment, sanctions of Israel, they'd be like, oh, I don't, oh, mate, oh, I don't know. Like they wouldn't. They wouldn't be able to say that. Um, if if you were in a certain kind of Labour CLP and you said something about Palestine, you may well get shouted down um, by the right of the party and things like that. So. Whereas, you know, I I'm, I teach RE. Um, I teach a whole unit on uh, Judaism, like starting from Abraham, going through, teaching Anne Frank. That's going to be interesting next year, doing Anne Frank whilst all the kids have been locked up for, for four months. Um, and then I do a lesson on Israel because it's just not in there. It's just not part of education in this country. No one learns about it. And I try and do it, in a, you know, in a way that doesn't, you know, doesn't try to be even handed as possible whilst kind of educating them on, on, on the issues. And, um, you know, I feel supported to do that because I feel like the union structures would support me. If anyone tried to counsel me for that, I would be able to go, boom, here's conference resolutions. Here's all these things that we do. Like I'm not saying anything out of, out of line here, but I wouldn't feel that protection expressing those views in the, in the labor party. And they've made that pretty clear by sacking, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who shared uh, who shared something from the famous, uh, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory newspaper, The Independent.
3: I mean, look, uh, to, to try and draw a line under the present situation with Labour, I think their focus on the aesthetic of everything, their focus on the optics... It's really a mask. It's a disguise for their complete unwillingness to challenge the narrative. And I'm afraid that's going to go across the board from education to all other kinds of policies. Um, I, they will let the neoliberal liberal drift continue. They will not stop academisation. They will not change Ofsted, and that that saddens me. Now it doesn't mean that this current you know arrangement of of power between Labour members, the PLP, and the unions. Things can and must change, but right now I'm 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 not holding out much hope. So that's I've I feel a bit let down by the Labour Party these last six months, but I don't think any of us are well, varying levels of surprise in the room on this issue.
2: Well, I think it's about it, it just underlines the idea that no one's gonna do any of this stuff for us. I think we got into the habit of thinking that with a good Labour Party leader they they'd do it for us. Like, we'd, we'd be looked after. It's, like, very clear that we're not. It is literally just us. It's, like, if you want, you know, if you want um, to get socialist candidates elected, you have to get them to stand and you have to support them and you have to get them elected. Like, that's, that's literally it. If you want the Labour Party to listen to you and pass something, you have to build that somewhere. Um, you know, if you want if you want your school to be less shit, you have to organise with the other people in the school. Like, you know, if, if you're a socialist and you want... Socialist policies. Voting for the Labour Party once every five years is not enough. You have like it is. It is strategically and morally, uh, it's an imperative on you to become a trade union rep. Yeah, it's to organise in your workplace. If you're a socialist and you think, you know, if you genuinely believe that and you genuinely believe that solves society, and it, you know, it doesn't matter what job you're in. If you're not organising, you're you're not helping. You're not doing anything. You can vote for the Labour great. Be in the Labour Party, great. Vote for the NEC candidates, great. Share, you know, buy, subscribe to the Tribune, do that. But if you're not, if you're not doing anything else, it's not enough. It just isn't enough. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, so it's probably a good time then to think about. Um, I guess we're talking about extra parliamentary spaces of, of changing things and challenging and narratives and stuff. So um, we wanted to talk about organizing for power as well so um a few of you guys have recently been involved in um a sort of a is it, would it be fair to say like a Jane McAlevy experiment um uh with some amazing sort of international solidarity building um exercises um so tom you were going to talk a little bit about, about that because i think it's important if we're thinking about how we do effect change given um well the current state of our of the Labour Party which we had a lot a lot invested in um but now you know if we're thinking about how we can use the union it's really important to think about organizing within the union so um yeah tell us what happened
1: yeah sure so yeah and it doesn't link back to what Nick was talking about it's come at a a perfect opportune time where a lot of us are feeling kind of disillusioned with Labour it's like yeah that's fine it's quite I think it's ultimately liberating and that's how I found organizing for power, that this whole process has been going on the last few months, is liberating and and it's inspiring. So the first event was kind of way back in the beginning. I don't even know what times I still filming. I'm gonna let's just let's just make up. Let's say it was in April. There was a course in April which was kind of across all, all trade unions. So anyone who's a trade unionist could sign up to it. And it got pushed, I think it was very low down in a kind of bulk email sent out by the national union. So a few of us signed up to that and it was yeah. It's a training course with, um, set up by Jane McAlevey, and she's written a number of books where so she's kind of outlined her principles of how to organize. And they're pretty straightforward principles, and they're sound principles, and they're principles that have been proven to work in a range of different kind of trade union, union contexts. I think a big thing, big point McAlevey makes is that people are always constantly trying to reinvent the ultimate concept of what Work is, or be like, oh, you're a worker, but you're not really a worker. You're much more than that. And what that's designed to do is to kind of make trade unions look outdated, and antiquated, and a complete waste of time. And you see that a lot, a lot in education, particularly these kind of these, these newer managers that come in. It's like unions. Why do you even need unions for? You're not a worker. You're a teacher. You're an educator. Or whatever. You're you're above this kind of old-fashioned view of people getting going down the pit or whatever. Um, but yeah, work work is fundamental. You have to do it because you need money and there's going to be a boss there whose job is to kind of get as much out of you for as little as possible and that fundamental doesn't change in kind of any context whether you're working in a school or um working down a coal mine or whatever um so uh, that was the it was the original course and from that kind of few of us uh, got thinking locally in the NEU and we approached the NEU's um national organizer for training uh to see if if they could put on some training more specific to kind of education and more specific to us locally in the Southwest. And we did, we did a short course on that where we kind of took some of McAlevey's key principles, which you can go into a bit more detail about. um, And we did did a good course and that was quite a good number of our local reps got involved and feedback I got was that it was was quite useful and helped them think differently about what, what a rep is. So to go back to Makonneni's point, she talks about trade unionism can even be advocacy, where someone a third party comes in and they'll go and sit in a darkened back room with your boss and they'll thrash out a deal and then they'll present present the final the final deal to you. Or there's the organising model where trade unionism isn't just yet another thing done to to the work or yet another level of bureaucracy in your life. It is something that is inextricably linked to your identity and to you and it's something you can get involved in and it's the means by which you can feel agency and power. Um, so from from organising that training, Nick and I then got in, um, asked to take part in this really amazing opportunity. I think, like Nick, you could talk about it a bit as well, but I found it really inspiring what we did and it was called um, the Educators' Summer School organizing of for power, I've forgotten the word. It was great apart from the fact I could never remember what it was actually called. What it involved was a number of us in the NEU and some other educators in America, and we were trained up to then deliver training. So Nick and I were involved in kind of train the trainers, which are quite lengthy Zoom calls. And then from that, we then went and we trained uh, education trade unionists in California. Um, And so to think about what's happening in California at the moment, they've got some of the highest COVID rates in the world they've also got some of the highest rates of inequality in the world i think we live we live in an unequal country in britain and i think we live in bristol we live in a very unequal city but california is kind of next level unequal and i went there about four years ago and it's kind of one of these things you can kind of grasp it's like everyone knows it's a bit of a cliche oh yeah you've got san francisco you've got silicon valley and you've got homeless people on the streets. But when you're actually there and you actually see what that means and you see the stark divide in inequality, like we have homelessness in Britain, but in California you'll see entire families out on the street, small little kids living on the street. And then literally, without exaggeration, it will be on the same street as like the Google headquarters in Venice in Los Angeles. And that kind of disparity is it's really, it's really really shocking. So that's the context educators in California are working in a two contexts of massive inequality and COVID. And of course, the two things are linked because the people who are suffering most from COVID in California. It's not like that. You're going to get any, any CEOs of tech companies dying of COVID. You're going to get black and brown people dying of COVID, ultimately. Um, so our job was to kind of train these trade union educators in California in basically organising principles about how to organise in the workplace, how to organise in the context of lockdowns, to basically leave you stronger because I think yeah, ultimately Nick talked about it earlier about Keir Starmer's killer line which he will never ever ever deliver because he doesn't have the imagination to do so is what is a union it's a collection of workers who realise they're stronger when they come together so uh, what McAleague teaches people to do is when they are in the workplace um, and it's, it's what I like about it is because it's structured and it's systematic um, which might seem a bit, bit strange to some people but I think it's quite effective. Um, the first the first step is to identify what she terms as organic organic leaders in the workplace who are effectively... Again, it's a very simple concept. It's if you think about a workplace, who are the people with respect? Who are the people you go to when you have a problem? Who are the people who have followers? Um, and she makes a very good point and this is born out of her experience and you can find it talking in her book, A Collective Bargain, she writes about the importance of organic leaders because they might be anti-union. You could have someone who's a leader in the workplace, 20, 30 people will follow them and listen to them. And if that leader says, oh, yeah, unions are crap, unions are a waste of time. I was involved in a union 10 years ago and they did absolutely nothing for me. Don't bother. Those people will follow that. So your job as the organiser, as the trade unionist, as the rep or whatever, is to kind of win them round to your side. And the way you do that is through, and again, it's so simple, it's obvious that you do that through kind of listen to them. Uh, you do it in a slightly more structured way. So another thing I can even talk about is semantics, which is about using words, words you should use, how you should frame things and how you should them. And again, it's very simple. You frame you frame the work, right at the center of it, you frame you what you want. What would be good for you? What would you like to see that you cannot get by yourself just kind of knocking on your head teacher's door and saying, oh, have you thought about scrapping sats because they're making me and my kids miserable? So that kind of semantic framing is another kind of really useful, useful tool. Um, And then from that, we have kind of six step structured organizing conversations, which, again, it's a systematic way to talk to people And uh, Nick, might want to talk about that. It seems quite strange at first when you start doing role-playing. And I don't think things like role-playing is a thing we particularly do in the NEU, or we don't do it. I've never been to a general meeting. It's like, right, we're going to have 20 minutes of role-playing how to organise in the workplace. But really, it probably would be a useful thing we should be doing in the future. So in these kind of structured organising conversations, you're listening to the worker and then you are making the worker, the member, whatever you want to call them, realize for themselves that nothing at all is ever going to change and no one's going to save you. The Labour Party is not going to save you. The Democratic Party is not going to save you in America. Things will only change if you recognize that you need to be participating and you need to be actively seeking the change collectively through the union. Um, She then talks quite a bit about mapping the workplace and um, charting the workplace, which again is a very simple idea, which is you get a team of people, So it's not just all on one rep to be the advocate for an entire workplace. You and a team of people, you systematically map your workplace. You work out who is where physically, who is where in a building or who is in what department. And then from that, you chart them and you chart them by speaking to them, by asking them to take simple steps to build power, to organise for power. And that might be something like sign a petition or sign a pledge or wear a certain item of clothing on a particular day as a symbolic, active, public, public gesture and of course the ultimate aim of all of this is to build up each workplace systematically, each union branch systematically, to a point where they are strike ready, which again makes perfect sense. I think in the context of America they're very rigid anti union laws and we do here, particularly since the twenty sixteen Trade Union Act. Means we've got a really high threshold to pass a ballot. But again, that's not anything to get angry about or moan about all oh, the fucking Tories again doing us over. That's a challenge. So of course, they were going to do that. They have the power to do that. What are we going to do in response? If we have to get a much higher turnout in a strike ballot, we need to be systematically building power so when there is a strike ballot, we know that we are going to win it. Nothing's going to be left to chance. It's not going to be like, oh, I've got 20 people in the science department. I don't really like them. or will get on with them, so I don't really talk to them. So no, you have to systematically be talking to them, listening to them, identifying their issues and then winning round to recognising that they are only ever going to see change through the union. So that's kind of, I suppose, a bit of an outline of what McAlevey talks about, what she writes about, and its application in the training Nick and I did was to teach these techniques to educators in California, including a number of educators who are members of United Teachers Los Angeles, who are um, quite a big union in America, I think about 33,000 members, and they a union that has rapidly reinvented itself in recent years and moved away from what McAlevey calls the advocacy model to the organising model. And they have had a lot of success with that in Los Angeles. They went on strike last year in 2019 with what McAlevey calls supermajority turnout. supermajority being 90% of all members agreeing and voting for something. And the success of that was that in narrow, same, similar as it is in Britain, kind of narrow legal parameters, you can only go on strike over specific issues of pay or in America, what is what is the contract, which is periodically renegotiated. So they, they went on strike normally over that because that's what they were allowed to do. But by building up such strength, a super majority of people supporting them, it wasn't just about pay. The success of their strike was that they put in place what are called common good demands, which are basically demands that are good for the communities that they serve. So, obviously, you think about Los Angeles, the inequality we talked about. Um, so, in their demands, they wanted a massive increase in the number of school nurses, school counsellors. They wanted more green space for their kids in Los Angeles. They wanted to limit a racist stop and search, which takes place in, in Los Angeles. And currently, the UTLA have put out a demand there to defund the police because they get no money as educators in Los Angeles. The LAPD gets a huge amount of money in Los Angeles. And as LAPD officers, Swarming in and out of their school buildings, all of its time searching, searching black kids basically. So they they put those concrete demands at the centre, and no surprise when they go on strike, nominally notionally overpaying conditions, they get massive support from parents and from the community because at the centre of everything they do actually demand are things that are going to make their lives better. Well, didn't they get um.
2: A public sector pay increase like across the board as well yeah was that's that, the um, thing they, was that um, yeah they, won, they
1: so, won across the
2: board so, so what's really interesting is because of the le- narrow legal framework means that they couldn't put those as demands but because the deep organizing model was so good and there's so much trust there because it's like you've got like 10 to 1 ratio of like members to someone they report to and then someone they report up you've got this really strong structure which means that when they say, look. We're not going to say we're going to try and go for these things until we're in a position to do it. Do you trust us to do it? And they're like, yes. But if if, if, if we did it a different way, if you just have an advocacy model, which is kind of what the lay party is, is now effectively, you've literally got an advocate, literally got a, a lawyer at the top. It's like, this guy's going to go in and do the negotiating for us. Do you trust him to do not only what he wants, but what all these other people want as well? Like, no, you don't. Like it's gonna, it's gonna be compromise, compromise, compromise. So like, it's it's really interesting that whole um, that whole that whole strategy there.
1: Yeah, and, it's, and you can see it um, in everything that they, they they do. Really, kind of, they have a really strong holistic political outlook. Um, so again, I've mentioned they were advocating for defund the police, but they released kind of their equivalent of I, I suppose we've talked in the earlier pods about the N.U.'s five tests, and for the life of me, I can't really remember them at the moment. But they put a pledge out, um, and this is the difference between, I suppose, what we did here and what they are doing there. They've put a pledge out for their members to sign, and they've got bits about public health and school safety. But of the five points, two of them are: you need to improve distance learning, make it more equitable, which is poorer students need access to laptops and internet so they can fully access the remote curriculum. They've also talked about kind of mental health support, social support, and they make the point that. You need economic support for families. They need workers need paid sick leave. I think happening in California, the people who are most getting fucked over by this on every single conceivable level are more likely to be well, they're going to be working class, they're going to be black and brown, because they're the ones who are going to suffer the most from schools not being open. They're the ones who are going to have least ability to access a remote curriculum. And they're also the ones when kind of Donald Trump and the american business elite say we need to get the economy up and running what they mean is we need childcare for kids of these workers so these workers can go back to work and be at a much greater risk of contracting covid and dying because again it's working class black and brown people in california disproportionately likely to die from covid19 so they've centered those sort of demands in everything that they do these aren't your kind of add-ons or afterthoughts they're central to everything that utla do it's all linked into the community but that's In terms of principle, that's absolutely right, but strategically, it also means that when you have a strike, you are going to get the support of the community to do that. And I think another simple thing they've put in their pledge, they put a little tick box, which says, I support my local union's executive board to call for a strike vote if these conditions are not met. So that's a very simple thing, but what they are doing just by saying, can you sign this or put your name to this, you're totally making the member think totally differently about how the union operates. The five tests we put out were, okay, Kevin and Mary have put these five tests out. Kevin and Mary can make sure we get it delivered through the government. What this does is make sure, well, it does two things. It means the member can now actively hold their leadership to account because they've signed this saying, I want you to call for a strike vote if these conditions aren't met. It also puts a lot of work onto the member because I think maybe me the EU you thought oh, a strike's quite a contentious issue. We don't want to avoid those difficult conversations with the members. Because Nick, you might talk about this as well, but speaking to UTLA members, they were referring to the S word and a lot of them were really kind of nervous about selling a strike over COVID-19. Now, I was a bit shocked at that originally because it's like, we well, just had one last year and it worked because you won everything you wanted. Why not just do it again? But it's, it's that, I thought that was interesting that even in unions that are radical or left-wing or whatever that might mean, there are still these, these discussions about why have a strike, why organising this, where are kind of ongoing things. So there was even a lot of reticence among UTLA members to use the word strike in relation to COVID-19. But I suppose what the union does is they don't shy away from kind of having what might be a difficult conversation with members because they recognise that by having those conversations, you are going to move the member to recognise that. If you don't do that, what's going to happen? You're going to go back to school, you might get COVID, kids in your school are going to get COVID, they're going to take it back into overcrowded housing and they're going to inadvertently kill members of their family because the COVID rate is so high.
2: The reticence I got about strike was, it's like the gun shyness that you get over here because my school went on strike and then if you were going to talk about when you, when I was trying to organise after that strike People were like oh I don't want to go on strike again It's like it's a standard gun shyness Like to be fair it's, it is a stressful thing But they were also which was really interesting Because they're so deep into Disaster capitalism in America Like obviously we are as well But like it, it's even more turbocharged there They were really worried That and this, this came out in the role plays When they were pretending to be Teachers you know reticent teachers They were saying like if we go for distance learning, which is like their demand, is like to not come back fully in August, but to do distance learning, they they could see they can see the future trend, which is sack all the teachers and just have uh, don't have schools anymore. Like that, you know. Which if I said that to someone in the staff room, they'd be like, y- "You're mental," and this is why no one listens to me because I I kind of say these these big things that like it's the bigger picture stuff that sounds like a conspiracy theory. But like these American teachers were way more. They could see it. They could see that capitalism wants to privatise everything. They want to sell off the schools. They want to get rid of teachers if possible and just have kids taught by YouTube videos. So it's really interesting how much further forward they are in that. Charlie, you try.
4: Yeah, um, I read Class War at the beginning of lockdown. So um, forgive me if my recollection of of the details is, is a little hazy um but yeah there, there were whole chapters on the various different um groups i think the bill gates foundation but they're not the you know, only one that have done um various bits of research which is like the way that they tailor it and manipulate it to make sure that yeah, you know, it's always a success and it is like things like distance learning yeah using uh programs to to teach so that's like well and truly ingrained in um the sort of American teaching, um, sort of not even culture is it. Sort of the it's a it's a marketplace essentially uh, where they're where they're selling cheap ways and quick fixes um, in order to address uh, systemic inequalities, it, and the main goal is to basically hide the fact that these. Uh, Inequalities and in outcomes are down to um, financial inequalities, and the, everything they could do to sort of provide proof that you know if you put X, Y, Z course in front of children, um, those ones are a success, and, and they forget all the the circumstances that led to that being a success for that particular individual group and then they just roll it out uh massively so yeah you could totally see why uh um, teachers in the u.s have that fear because it it is a very much a present threat to them already and yeah i think it's possibly a sort of a look into our future
1: for power has kind of done over there is that the teachers notice They don't need to be told this by an external third party. They they can see what's happening in their day-to-day lives, but they are now being kind of empowered to recognise that, well, if better fucking do something about it, get together with other people and actually push back against it. And again, it's like it's it's been really kind of eye-opening for me just how kind of obvious all this stuff is, but how shocking that for such a long time kind of unions have kind of shied away from I suppose effectively trusting their membership and listening to them. And then, kind of putting a bit back on the membership to be like, well, if these are the problems you've identified, you better get together and do something about it.
0: I think it's interesting that you say that. Like um, educators in the US, they they're um, much more aware of of the kind of the obstacles that they that they're coming up against. They're they're aware of the nature of them in the, in a way that maybe we're not as educators here totally kind of uh, seeing things transparently in the same way um but I think that's kind of um not so true in terms of the recent uh movements to sort of decolonize curriculums or to kind of create anti-racist curriculums So, there's quite a lot of activity around that so it's be quite interesting to talk about that now because yeah uh, given sort of like the maelstrom of events that have happened recently you know sort of starting with I guess the kind of um uh the kind of uh, prominence of um the killing of, of George Floyd and uh, Ahmed Arbery and then um the sort of uh, um a kind of I've forgotten his name. I've totally forgotten his name. The birdwatcher in um, the park in America, and that sort of video going viral of the um, the white woman calling the police on him and sort of um, weaponising his blackness to, to, to sort of uh, absolve her of of the thing that she was doing wrong. Um, this is all basically brought to the fore the the kind of a lot of the realities of of, um, of racism. And so we've seen recently in in the union and amongst our sort of like colleagues uh, this kind of new consciousness of of how curriculums feed into um, uh, the kind of inequalities that we we're seeing. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to talk then about how anti-racism or kind of decolonised curriculums should should actually work. <laughs> Excuse me. So what do we think? Because we've all been i think part of groups that have been working to decolonize our particular subjects and stuff um yeah what what have we seen that we kind of we think's hopeful or like um yeah challenging the status quo uh, also like does anyone want to talk about the difference between like diversifying and decolonizing curriculums because that's been some there's been some debate over that as well or some
3: consciousness raising over what that means? Um, yeah, so I'll jump in on this. I mean, to, to take it from the top, you know, there is a, a really pleasing and welcome realisation amongst some educators that they see the role in which our education system and the very curriculum we teach is a component of the structural racism that, you know, people of colour globally suffer under. Okay, and you know, inequalities are replicated in the classroom. Um, And what this doesn't mean, you know, to start with, what decolonization is not and should not be, it's not tokenism. You know, if you merely diversify your curriculum and you sprinkle. Some black people amongst the history that you teach, or that you have like one lesson on, like, oh, what's different about Latin American culture in in a Spanish classroom, right? You you are merely ticking a box and telling yourself that you now are a much less racist teacher, and that the 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 students will <laughs> have, yeah, the students will have five years in your classroom and suddenly not you know, um, start chanting all lives matter, right? Um, decolonization is a much more radical idea that starts with a philosophical outlook that, you know, the people in charge of something like the national curriculum or the exam boards are not representative of the people that they teach. Um, so it's no surprise then that the GCSE syllabus or the Key Stage 3 curriculum is not representative of the students it's provided for. So decolonization is about removing that colonised viewpoint, that uh, set of cultural touchstones, just the parameters of what is good to teach needs to be fundamentally questioned and interrogated. So just having one lesson, I mean, well, Black History Month... For all its laudable goals, that is diversity. That is not a decolonised curriculum. So if you're saying, right, we can we can deal with all Black history in one month every year, and then we just get back to the white stuff, it's ridiculous, okay? Um, and so we've seen teachers, uh, particularly in the southwest, you know, forming networks, uh, subject specific. So you know, we've got a group for geography, we've got a group for MFL, there's a group for English. Uh, there is a kind of group for history, but I'm, I, I, I'm in it. But I still see potential for a more radical approach. That's something I'm going to be reading around and working towards over the summer break. But we need to place all people at the centre of the history. And that involves losing eurocentrism it's not acceptable to just teach about english history for literally 1500 years and then we go oh look and suddenly there's the british empire and slavery how did that happen you know um you could you could come away from a lot of um english classrooms with the idea that europe was the center of civilization and that we invented everything and everyone else was playing catch-up that all needs to go in the bin and it's about educating yourself as an educator Knowing that actually there's a ton of history you weren't taught at school, so you've got to teach yourself first of all. And then also just listening to teachers of, di- you know, of different backgrounds and listening to students of different backgrounds, what history could connect to them. And this really connects with what we were raising in our episode with Dr. Roger Ball, where he's talking about an inclusive history that actually centres much more on the, the lived experience of ordinary people, white and black, and indeed of any ethnic background. The very fact that Britain has had such a prominent position on the global stage throughout history needs to be interrogated in terms of what did this do, to the people it lived under, whether they were nominally free, you know, uh, white working class people, or whether they were enslaved Africans. But it's another crucial facet of decolonizing is that you put people's agency in the history. So you talk about what people themselves did during their lives to break the shackles they lived under, to interrogate power in their lives as they lived, in a way that we must do now, and that we are failing our students if we don't teach them about. So look, I think that's probably a very haphazard summary of of what is happening ideologically right now. But what it means is that there are massive WhatsApp groups, people are exchanging articles, uh, YouTube clips, entire books, people are you know specking up their knowledge and then thinking about better ways to teach students that are not eurocentric they are not colonized these are histories of truth and of an appropriate scale and focus to do justice to the live reality of the human race might be a noble goal but that that's that's what it is from my take Lee, have you got
2: like a specific lesson that you're that you're going to change for next year or something that you've like stop teaching and you're gonna you're gonna shuffle around and and change oh
3: definitely so um i mean I, and i think this is a you, you'll hear other people talking about this but a classic example is the way in which the transatlantic slave trade is taught in you know again in most classrooms i've seen and also in the way that i've done it in the past you know there, there's a great positives p- of slavery that the oh yeah positives I- versus negatives <laughs> <laughs> um Let's just take the example of someone like William Wilberforce. He gets a lot of credit in a conventional history curriculum as this fine orator who struggled against, you know, the the vast, you know, landed and slaveholding interests in Parliament, and him and his plucky band of abolitionists really, you know, uh, changed people's minds and really sold people on the moral case against slavery. Um, that is obviously part of the story, but. There are loads of classrooms in which William Wilberforce gave a load of fine speeches and we ended slavery out of the goodness of our own hearts. Um, a decolonised look at that very same topic will look at the business and you know military-industrial case that was made and was the decisive element in Parliament deciding to end slavery. It was done for financial reasons. It was done for realpolitik. It was done to compensate the already rich people who owned slaves, you know, a a, a multi-billion pound settlement that was only paid off in the late 20th century, uh, probably early 21st century, you know, um, basically they socialized the failing risk of slavery in the sense that people were just paid off for owning slaves, and then the British Empire could use that as a bat to hit its other enemies. And also slavery had become outmoded because we just had full-on colonialism as the means by which Western, nation, Western European nations were brutally extracting wealth and free labour from colonised peoples around the world. So kids need to know that. If they go through a history curriculum and think that giving fine speeches is all you need to change the world, um, we're not equipping them with the tools they need to face what they're heading into right here, right now so that, that's my take i don't know if anyone else has got some thoughts
0: no no it's all right um i was just saying it, it's it's an interesting project because um the way i see it is you can't you can't decolonize and talk about sort of like um you know racism etc without sort of decentering the center fully so um you know, like, I think it's going to be quite difficult for some of us because I think that involves de- decentering the sort of um the the norm the normalcy of um capitalism, like, you know, and and how this kind of dictates quite a lot of, of, of our lives. I think it, we're going to have to um decenter this idea that like able bodies are you know normal as well and start start looking at you know the perspectives of of other kind of view um world views etc so i think the i think this is a useful starting point to sort of um decenter just decenter everything so so yeah um i I was just i was just thinking about a lesson that um are you we used to teach or, or a topic we used to teach um a couple of years ago um in the school i was in where on rhetoric and um i remember um when there was a, there was a big vote in parliament i think about humanitarian intervention in in syria and we decided to use a lot of um speeches or i decided to use a lot of speeches um from uh, mps um made either in favour of humanitarian intervention or kind of like not in favour of it. And um, one of my colleagues said, oh, you know, did you hear that speech by Hillary Benn? Um, what an amazing piece of rhetoric and, and it'd been in the news as well It'd been in, it, it, you know, just um, Lauded for, for its uh, How articulate it was And how well it put the case For humanitarian intervention And um, I thought it was really Problematic, I was like, right, so it, it, He might have He might have strung together some words very nicely, but fundamentally, what is he advocating for here? Um, And there was no concept of that being problematic or a problematic thing to put in front of a child. um, uh, You know, because... Because what it was advocating for was for us to go into a a, a war country and, and and continue to bomb it to shreds. You know, there was no concept of what's behind that as well. And I think I think this is going to be a really big challenge, and it's already becoming a bit of a challenge for those of us that are in groups where um, there is this sort of like non-threatening positivity about like centering Black voices and celebrating, um, you know, like the perspective of others, but there's no concept. Of, of how far we can go and how far we need to go with it actually um, so I think it's a big it's a bigger project um, uh, but it, it's it's starting off really well it's starting off with people kind of under, understanding that uh, that there are spaces that need to change and there are really easy ways that we can change it at the moment, um, yeah, you know, from like you were saying, you know, reading a book and deciding how to incorporate that into your teaching, um, etc. But I think it's a it's a much bigger project and it's got a lot of radical potential. Um, yeah, so it's
1: it's, it's exciting. Yeah, to kind, of, to kind of build on build on those points. I mean, I think yeah, I think the danger at the moment is a lot of this is put on us as kind of individual educators or within our classroom or departments to kind of do good work. Like I'm certain, Lee teachers absolutely fantastic, principled, politically sound history lessons, and I like I I think my department does too. Um, move, there's lots of departments up and down the country in history where they will be teaching. Oh, the British Empire, good or bad. Railways were good. Genocide was a bit bad. <laughs> Decide for yourself, kids. You know, it's it's fifty-fifty, whatever. Um, <laughs> which is horrendous, and it's like, that's practice. You see, you can see lessons like that if uh, if you go on the Times Education Supplement website to download resources. It's that's a common thing, and I think. Yeah, I think we're doing good work. It has to start with ourselves and our practice and what we do in the classroom, in the workplace. But then I think we do have to be thinking about how we then move it on to go back to this idea of organising for power and making collective demands uh, regionally or nationally to get the curriculum changed. I think about um, the English curriculum changes that Gove introduced it may have been, what, six, seven years ago now, and it's like, Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is every single book that's covered in the English GCSE is white and British, is my understanding of it. Um, and that was deliberately designed in a very classist, racist, sexist way. We recognise that we can see that. We knew at the time that's what Gove was doing, the direction he wanted to go in. What are we now going to do to kind of actively push back against that and to kind of win, win a national curriculum that is that is fit for purpose and fit for the lives of our kids and our communities today
2: yeah it's that thing of the diversifying thing is quite easy isn't it it's like you plan a new lesson so i'm thinking i'll ditch william wilberforce and i'll do um harriet tubman in a bit more detail because she was a christian as well and i can fit that in an re curriculum which is fine that's easy no one's going to stop you from doing that to be honest but when you try and decolonize when you try and like question the assumption that that's going to be harder work and there's going to be pushback there and i think that is a completely legitimate thing for union groups to come together and push back against management over. But that, but that is a, that is a battle, but yeah. Char- Charlie, I, I want to hear what the worst, most colonised primary school experiences you've heard. What, cause you, you've got like an insight into s- lots of different schools doing supply. Like, is there anything absolutely awful that you've had to teach?
4: I think, I think it's probably things that I've talked about before. Uh, cause obviously it's been a while since I taught a history lesson um, or even a geography lesson, or anything that kind of looked back a, or around the world in any way. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of highlight reels of terrible things I saw, I, which I think I said before, like the Black History Month being condensed into a day and then shared with or um, LGBT history and I think disabled history all in in one day's bonanza uh, other times was just like a powerpoint that came off um maybe off the internet or maybe it was made by somebody within the school either way uh which um used the word needed uh, in terms of uh, acquiring slaves by the british colonies i think the phrase was something like the british needed <laughs> to get more slaves in order to da, 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 wait, money money make money sell things etc so, oh, oh they needed to did they like you know when you like need food you need slaves is it is that the phrase is that the wording you're gonna and i was in a class with you know uh black students in there and i was just like i'm just gonna highlight the fact that i disagree with the word need in this sentence even though i was teaching this class for an hour so you know to kind of to unpick that like in the amount that it needed would take more than my hour that i was allotted and probably um more time than i needed. the class teacher was uh, willing to go in but i definitely highlighted and definitely said i um, I was not happy with the word "need" um, and saw it as being completely.
2: There was no other choice.
4: Yeah, in opposition to everything that you know we understand to be our modern moral position on on what slavery was and, and what it is today. Um, you know i I think the way that the tudors i think i was talking to lee about this the other day about how sort of bizarre how we fetishize this one king this one era that doesn't really like offer us very much at all obviously there were some changes that happened around religion and politics at the time but it's still like it's so strange that we offer that up uh on a plate to um children so when i was learning about the tudors myself i sort of felt if i was to like Asked if I had been asked, which I wasn't, um, what is the reason why this king has been chosen over all others, I would have probably suggested the kooky fact that he had six wives. And I'm probably pretty sure that because having six wives is sort of this sort of depoliticised, I mean, it is, well obviously it was, in it's it is true, it's very political, um, but depoliticized, um removed of... Uh, f- the blood removed of the gore removed of the horror of a lot of um history when it comes to yeah the 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 royalty what are you saying do you not
2: think do you not think it's quite important that we study um like an old ruler who was like overweight and full of syphilis who had Lots of wives and lots of children by different. Do you not think that does actually matter to kids today as they have an overweight, syphilitic, uh, ill looking, bonking buzzer oh, as a leader? Do you not think that that's the comparison <laughs> that should be drawn there?
3: Well, they got the same body count. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, perhaps.
4: <laughs> but I mean, at least, I mean, supposedly henry VIII was um hot in his day that was also something i was uh, hot in his day though look at all these fat pages hot in his day though um so yeah no you i mean perhaps these are comparisons nowadays that obviously um we wouldn't have drawn when we were learning about it but nowadays maybe yeah that is the, the comparison that you might find yeah that um the perhaps you can look more at the incompetence of yeah, <laughs> that, that um, brings history
0: to life. But, yeah,
4: like I think, um, yes, you could look at the the sort of highlight reels of the cases where you can starkly say that um, the curriculum that's being offered is colonial; that it is isn't like, isn't at all diverse. But what's my what's my highlights reel of actual good times? Um, dear I could t- one t- um, thing that was planned, um, which uh, was about a man whose name usually sticks in my head, but today has decided to escape. But we'll, we'll put in the show notes. Um, is a case of. Going to the North Pole, there was um a rich white man who um
2: Richard Branson. Not Richard Branson's
4: it was the first time going to the oh, North Pole and he
2: pretty sure that was Richard Branson, it, but yeah. he
4: didn't actually make it. So this is a story of trying to get there and, and he said he did and then they were able to prove like later on. Uh Henson, that's the name. Um, they said that he he said that he got there but he didn't. But basically he was supported in this and I think uh, when it came down to it, um, this this other man who he paid to help him um, was a black uh, African American, sorry, African American man who had all the skills, had all the know-how, and basically at one point probably dragged his um, white um, boss all the way to a point which they claimed to be the North Pole, but it wasn't, and that was a really rich look that we did on um the erasure of um black people in history because uh, when they got back he literally tried to almost deny every part of help uh, that he was given and and also yeah looking at it from a different perspective And we really did, yeah, I really loved the way that that whole unit was covered and how it was planned. And it sort of made me think that in the future when I do have more opportunities to plan things out myself and I hope to do some more planning... um, in the coming months, having i 'm halfway through black and British, one of the biggest books i 've read in recent times, um, that we can look at it in that way because uh, it, with these year four children, we actually did talk about racism and we did talk and you know i 'm not saying that like it, we went into it in the detail that you might do in secondary school, but um, but it was a look at institutional racism, which kind of uh, i think was there probably the first time really looking at it in that way, and that was a that was a great start. And yeah, but that's that's the one highlight. I don't have any other instances where we looked at things so well as that. And and that's what we need more of.
0: Great stuff. Anyone else got any um anything that they think they're going to be able to change in in the next sort of like well, the next time they're in a
3: classroom? Um, Well, one thing I will say is that um, there is institutional appetite, uh, certainly from a management perspective. Uh, They want to be seen to be doing stuff on this. So there is a huge opportunity for teachers, as as Tom was saying, if we get organised on a curriculum level in school you can make a much bigger difference than just your classroom. And it is about finding those like-minded people. It's about forming a committee or a working group within your school, or even better yet, in your multi-academy trust. So something I'm looking to do is to leverage that 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 management appetite to be seen to be progressive and dealing with issues of structural racism I don't think there's a bet there's there's not been a better time than now to really push for 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 that kind of reform Um, whether it's possible on a national level because it would be ideal to be tackling head-on the exam boards you know they have a huge role in shaping obviously what it is kids are supposed to know in order to pass their GCSEs and A-levels but still that you can still teach in a decolonized manner for a colonized exam it is possible to do that um so for me i've got a little it's not just about my education and my resources that i make it's about the organization that we do you know curriculum has to be a part of what we do as trade unionists Uh, we are a professional association as much as we are a trade union so that's just one thing i'm thinking about at the moment
2: yes for me i can Because I teach RA, I, I, it's sort of my responsibility to teach about uh, Martin Luther King. And in the past, I've tried to do him uh, in a way that is like, try to show his, his radicalism, basically. I try and show the link between uh, him and different forms of protest and like ways of creating power and challenging the status quo uh, that's sometimes messy and violent but without you attacking anyone and then that links into kind of Gandhi and things like that but what I've realised is there's a clip that I use in my King because it's just like the right length and it's not perfect you always do this as a teacher it's like I've got this video clip it's like quite annoying but if you say the right thing at the start and end of it you just get away with using it but there's a whole bit in it which is about like Celebrating the kind of Centenary or Bicentenary of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation And it goes through And it has this Really uplifting music And it basically Shows you like All these prominent uh, African American uh, People in American life So like Condoleezza Rice <coughs> uh, like, All these like First All these like, uh, ba- like sport, Sports player Like Sport Sporty people And like Quite often Republican uh, what, Colin Powell yeah Yeah, honestly Um, like people like that and it's like really really uplifting like hype music like yeah 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 and basically then then you try and get the kiss right about martin luther king and they go i think he's great because he ended racism and it's like that for years has annoyed me uh because they keep saying that that he ended racism it's like absolutely not um and i've now it's kind of got it into my head it's like oh yeah it's because that the way that that little clip that I use uh, goes it kind of makes the kids feel like that and it's also a very easy thing to to say but like now is the time to kind of emphasise to the kids like no he gave it a good go but it's much deeper much more endemic than that and um, yeah I just need to scrap I, I hate that lesson that it doesn't never quite goes right and I need to just scrap it and start again and this is kind of giving me the I just have to do whether or not I, I bother in I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going
3: to do it. No, but but, but, uh, students at the very least need to be shown the opinion polls of how hated he was by the time he was assassinated because he dared to speak out on the Vietnam War. He dared to challenge structural poverty and they fucking hated him for it. And obviously in the sanitised history that's presented now, they like the anti-racism stuff, but they don't like anything else about his radicalism. I was
2: thinking I might... I might start with the. It's like the FBI, didn't they? They lit up their buildings um, for Martin Luther King Day, and I saw a tweet that said, "You literally sent him letters trying to persuade him to kill himself." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I might use that as the starter somehow. But yeah, it's year eight though, so I, yeah.
1: I'd still go for that, Nick. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think you've touched on on the point there. It's like I find being being a teacher is a constant state of guilt of. I could do this better, I should be doing this better, I should be taking the time to adapt this lesson so it really hits the point you want it to hit. As in, like, yeah, I have to teach, I have to teach Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, through the very narrow framework of of the syllabus, of the exam board curriculum. But I think, yeah, part of that what needs to be is we need to be making these demands as trade unionists of how to improve the curriculum. So I think, to so thinking about your point, Nick, we need the time to do it. We need much more planning, preparation and assessment time. We need more time out of the classroom to really get involved and engage in really high-quality CPD because, yeah, I can see it coming a mile off. We all want change. I think this is something where rank and file educators and management are all kind of broadly on the same page. We can all agree that racism is really, really, really bad. Um, but, yeah, my fear is that then... it does just get forgotten about and marginalised. And if and when we are back back in the classroom, we're just going to be ground down by the day-to-day again and not really have the kind of distance sort of scope to kind of embed embed a much better curriculum. So I think it does come back to what demands we can make collectively. And I think one thing that should be put there is we need the time and we need to be given the energy to, to do it properly and to do it justice. Because I think, yeah, to go back to the point he was making, like individual educators... They do find the time to do the best they can. But that's never going to be enough, really.
4: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I don't know if there is enough CPD time in the world to do the amount of work that's needed, potentially, to re-educate um, the educators about uh, all the history that we've, we've missed. The, the fact that we... Uh, unless you did a history degree and maybe even if you did um, you still have huge gaps in your knowledge about um, British history and as going back to like me I'm listening to the audible version of Black and British it's 24 hours long this is like you know I'm dyslexic I would probably unless it's um, you know game of thrones which i did manage to read of a civil of a like i'm never going to be able to comprehend that much nonfiction of on any category but listening to it is, is getting me through and is getting me there and I'm, I'm really enjoying it and i think that's one thing that i think is really important i'm also listening uh, as much as possible to the working class history podcast uh, which again i find really really useful in just sort of challenging perceptions that i've probably had not really realized i've had about how history um went down and um and one of the things i found really interesting that i've sort of been getting from both and i think that maybe that kind of links with the martin luther king uh lesson that nick spoke of is actually maybe more explicitly we need to teach about um how history is revised um as it happens how history is revised in the sort of decades um sort of within the same generation how things can already shift and then how over 100 like 100 year periods um we forget and we warp our perceptions so you you look at there's all sorts of things you know um world war one you could look at that and i think you know Coulston, obviously, is something that's already been discussed on the po- previous episode of the podcast, um, how his legacy was changed and warped and for what, um, what purposes. Um uh, Because, yeah, that's something that I've been finding really interesting, the links between now, the present moment, and then um, um, Britain, post um, the abolition of the slave trade, um, how Quickly, uh, the British public really wanted to get this sense that oh, we were we were never racist. We were never we were up for this for years, for centuries. From, you know, since before slavery even started, we were against it. It's Like you, you weren't there, were you? Um, but suddenly, it became just in vogue to uh, sort of read about and 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 get on board with it. And there were people who were either part of the abolition movement but maybe sort of the more conservative because uh, there was many like sort of conservative views people even part of the abolition movement who were actively racist and still thought there was a division you know uh, between the sort of humanity of um black and white people but still were um abolitionists for various reasons and, and they wanted to sort of capitalise on their role in it, so would do all sorts of manipulative things to um, others who had, had a much bigger role to basically change history within that decade, to change it so that they would appear to be the one that's remembered and the names that are remembered. And, and so we have to think about who is remembered, why are they remembered, how did that come about, who decided that they were... did um play the biggest roles and that's obviously really difficult but if we want to decolonize we need to sort of unpick who really yeah we're hearing from and make sure that we've we're hearing from a wide range of voices and and, and decolonize the yeah the history what's written on the page itself i don't know
3: um yeah charlie i just want to jump in you know I want to give a shout out to the guy you've already mentioned, uh, historian David Odasoga. He's pretty good. Well worth checking out his series as well as the book. Um, But uh, uh, you're never going to get one source that's going to do this for you. You know, and that's part of the challenge. But um, there's one YouTube video I want to recommend. Just as a really good primer for, you know, discussing who wrote the history and how has this affected how it's been presented and for what reasons. I just want to give a shout out to Akala. Um, his uh, Oxford Student Union debate, or oh, it's not even a debate, it's just a, It's an Oxford Union uh, Q&A, a big speech. He he gives you a whistle-stop tour through all the history from Africa and Asia that's just been left out of the curriculum. And it's very thought-provoking, lots of lovely little tidbits that by themselves could make a really interesting lesson for primaries kids or for secondary kids. So if you just want to... An easy to digest introduction. Check out Akala's Student Union, uh, Oxford Union uh, presentation. Just type those words into YouTube. It'll be the first thing that comes up. 1.6 million views. It's very accessible and, and would be a good place to start if you want to embark on your decolonizing journey. Yeah.
4: And I also did have a quick Google to check that I did get the name right. So it was Matthew Henson was the explorer uh, who's African-American and he accompanied Robert Peary, who Robert Peary, with the man with the money, claimed, claimed everything um, for, for many years. And that was a really hard-won battle to, for uh, Matthew Henson to get any recognition. It is actually a really interesting story. Uh, so worth, worth looking at.
0: Brilliant. Um, so... Yeah, just to round up what you've all been saying as well, um, I think, I think the discussion has shown actually how important we are to each other. So, um, you know, you know, I've often thought this in schools as well. So, so you know, having constant observations by members of middle management or SLT it doesn't doesn't help to you to improve your practice and um, it doesn't doesn't help you to sort of fill the gaps in your knowledge like um, Charlie said I think peer conversation and um, peer observation peer review is really important because inevitably you know one teacher's knowledge base is going to be very different from another teacher's knowledge base um and so these groups that that we've been in these decolonising sort of whatsapp groups or zoom meetings that we've been having all that's very apparent and it's also very fruitful and enriching um when we go to each other for for tips and ideas so um yeah that's one thing i think we need to we need to really think about going forward because like um like charlie says you know there's not enough cpd time in the world to sort of to 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 get us all up to speed um so yeah that's just something i've been thinking about and i think it's really it's a really great moment for that as well because we're actually doing what what we should be doing you know as as teachers we should be talking to each other learning from each other and and experimenting as well i think it's really important that these groups have shown that there isn't a, a way of being a professional teacher in a classroom because often that way of being a professional teacher in a classroom just doesn't cut it so um yeah i think this is a really a really nice moment um for sort of like developing um all right so before we go i think it was, we wanted to talk about because we're on a we're on a positive tip uh let's talk about the things that we did win um on june the first so um this will have been much more pertinent for you guys because you're all in mainstream classrooms I'm, I'm in a prison and actually in terms of not going into work um they were they were much more kind of uh, cautious because if uh, if COVID gets into a prison, you know it's a perfect petri dish, and that's a, that that's a horrible problem for not only the prison system, their PR, but also the community. Um, but it doesn't seem like the powers that be felt that uh, we should have that much caution in schools, which are also potentially the perfect petri dishes for uh, COVID to spread. But we did win. Um, broadly speaking on not going back to school on June the 1st. so what happened? Just a few kind of like uh, things about how that works.
2: I, it's just important to say because wins are messy yeah when you when you get a win in trade unionism it's rarely if ever on a little plate and given to you. Um, certainly not management or whoever you win against they're not going to talk about it as a win are they why would they you've made them look stupid um so like little celebrating little wins and trumpeting big wins are really important in trade unionism if you can if you win something if you're a rep and you you get the tiniest little thing like the tiniest little shred of dignity back for a member you need to tell all the other members that it worked like it's really really important and so like this june the first thing like the only two good things that have happened um in 2020 are uh, Colston going splashti by in the dock and um, the NEU basically beat beating the government with an 80 seat Tory majority like they wanted all primary schools they wanted all students to go back on June the 1st we didn't let that happen they wanted all secondary schools to go back a few weeks later that didn't happen like and be- and, and because because we resisted some people didn't die like some some people didn't die we've got the worst death rate in the world it's like one in a thousand people in this country has died you wouldn't know that by watching the TV or reading the newspapers or talking to a lot of people to be honest but like one in a thousand people has died and that could have been higher if the schools had gone back and we know that and we need to feel good about that we need to feel good that works and and it's we've seen the NEU at its best I think um, in that thing you know, we've got loads of new reps um, loads of new members and there's a war coming in September and we can talk about some of the issues there that the next things that are coming, but like it's been, it's been rubbish for kids to not be in school. It's been, it's been bad for them, but it's way worse if they're dead or their parents are dead or their teachers are dead, or there's just even more disruption in society wider. So like that, that, that was a win. We did win it. The people that write history will make it, try and make it not appear you know, in September they'll be saying that we were the problem. You know, but we need to celebrate it as a win because it did win, and we need to tell people in workplaces that that made a difference um, because it did, and they can't they can't take that away from us. Uh,
4: another difference that I think we've heard about in like the reps WhatsApp groups is that um, the reps and like like the wider um, any membership of of any given school are being consulted like in advance of decisions made around, um, you know, COVID and, like, how, how things are going to change, like, both towards the end of the year and uh, in preparation for September. And schools, obviously, you know, as as Nick's saying, are acting like that was something that they always did and not trying to make a big deal out of it. Just go, oh, yeah, we're just consulting you. But actually, yeah, that's a huge, huge change and uh, not something that they would have necessarily ever considered before, but because they're realising you know be due to the positive way that um reps and members like approach the senior leadership that actually it, it's in the benefit of everyone for that consultation to happen and for it to happen in every every area uh like it, yeah it it benefits everyone and it, it creates that goodwill, uh, but it, it stops you from dying. It means that the most education that um, that can happen does happen. And yeah, there's there's not really, other than just not wanting to give the unions power, there's no reason not to do that.
2: So what, what's coming? What's the next? What are the next battles that people see? Like... Like face masks, I, I can't remember how much I said before, but that's going to be something. There's going to be members of staff who want to wear masks. M- management are going to say no. They're going to point to the government guidance, which says no. But from already talking to people in my school, it sounds like that's going to be our first showdown with management. And people are pretty supportive of management. And like fair enough, management in a lot of schools have been really good during this pandemic. And I've never felt more sorry for SLT than them having no break and you know properly busting it throughout a really really difficult time so like fair, fair enough to the ones that have been treating their staff properly but in September they're going to say no masks and the union group is going to come together It's like you know it's like there's two members of staff in my school that don't have spleens now I don't know what a spleen is I've only heard of spleens rupturing yeah but these staff members like apparently that you know if you don't have a spleen you need a face mask yeah or you can't come to school and at the moment, management is saying no; it's unnecessary. Even if it's a psychological thing that helps them, I feel like our school group will say, "Look, we're going to stand by the teachers over management on this." And that, that to me, I think is going to be a a little showdown. Um, but no, other stuff, pay. I think that's 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 going to come up. I don't know if someone wants to talk about that, but um, that's going to be something coming up. And uh, cramming, um, we're going to be expected. The kids, the, the kids going into year eleven now after missing six months, well, not missing six months of school, but not being in school for six months, they're going to be expected to catch up to pass their GCSEs possibly one month later than they would have normally been. So there's going to be a lot of push on teachers and kids to, for us to set like double homework for teachers to stay behind and do revision sessions, you know, period six, period seven, uh, in school till five o'clock. That, that is going to be a huge uh, site of pressure Um and I could, yeah, I can see that being problem. And again, it's going to be weaponized against us. Teachers are going to be the baddies in this um, for not caring about their students' grades. Um, that I see is is one of the big big issues. Uh,
3: no, I think I think you've highlighted some worrying things on the horizon there. Uh, for me, I I still think there is a huge role for the union to play in health and safety vigilance because you know. I want to take an optimistic view of how COVID is progressing, but we're not very far away from a second wave. It could be on the brew as we speak, and there will be some workplaces in this country that are dangerous for everyone to be in, because COVID is in the building and there will be attempts to potentially cover that up or to try and pretend it isn't happening. And, and the union needs to really defend its members and the students and the wider community by making sure management are held to account on this issue uh, because we can we can tell what the mood is from the government in that it's conflicting advice, it's all optional. The latest set of guidance from the DFE has been described by the managers it's for as useless, you know, to the point of being self-contradictory. Um, you might as well not publish it because the guidance says, well, you should do this, but only if you really think so. And of course, you you decide the way in which you implement these things. Basic stuff like how far apart should students be kept? You know, the face coverings issue as well. So the union's got to be front and centre in closing down schools that are demonstrably unsafe and and, and just trying to fight that fire because I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And how I wish that were not the case... Lord knows it's depressing to think about but you know all the issues that Nick has raised I still think we're I still think the elephant
1: in the room is the deadly illness that's going around <laughs> so yeah yeah I kind of feel similar I feel we're in a bit of a, a lulled into this kind of weird space where yeah I think we would agree we want we would ideally love things to go back to normal but they're not maybe when there's a vaccine maybe they will but even then, I think that the damage done to society and to student mental health is going to be so great that things are going to have to change fundamentally. But I think what we're seeing kind of at the moment is that the lives of workers are secondary to to the economy and to link it back to kind of organising for power and our good friends at the UTLA, they released a really good political statement back in July. And so in terms of What's going to happen next? I think their fight is going to be instructive because their school year is starting earlier than ours, obviously, and they've got an even greater rate of COVID over there. But they're in a huge struggle at the moment to kind, of, to kind of win schools. there. I'll read the final paragraph of the report they released in July, and it goes, when politicians exhort educators and other workers to reignite the economy, UTLA educators ask, who are you planning to use as kindling? The benefits to restarting physical school must outweigh the risks, especially for our most vulnerable students and school communities. As it stands, the only people guaranteed to benefit from the premature physical reopenings of school, of schools amidst a rapidly accelerating pandemic are billionaires and the politicians they've purchased, which I think is a reasonable summary of kind of the big picture of, of where we are at. I don't trust this government to really have the interests of kids, their families, or us as educators at heart. I just... I just don't. I think any, any decision for what school is going to be looked like, I think health and safety isn't going to be the primary concern and things are going to be kind of covered and moved along and it's going to be this kind of insidious expectation that we as educators, we're, just, we're going to be the heroes now. We're going to be heroes, which means we're going to have to accept that some of us might die, but we'd be heroes in doing it. So good for them. They've, they've got the highest honour. They've died in the service of delivering... A good high-quality GC GCSE curriculum uh, to some to some underprivileged kids, and they've closed that gap. Like they can they can put that on their gravestones. Frankly, seems to be the implication.
3: <laughs> uh, I for one cannot wait to be herded into the COVID wood chipper. <laughs> we're all we're all going to graduate from Bovine University. Then, when the cattle are just right, hmm, it's time for them to graduate from Bovine University
4: yeah I mean I don't know how trivial or um key it will feel but I I can't help thinking you know not just the masks but also the hand washing and the sinks uh I know something you touched on before about like you know some some secondary schools having 30 sinks in you know schools of a thousand um but I think that's going to be from bottom to the top in terms of schools how how to keep children clean who don't necessarily care to personally or have a sense of personal hygiene or the children who do care very much and like their sort of feeling of safety in schools at all will already be compromised anyway but to definitely feel safe like maybe needing to uh, wash their hands regularly i think what we've already seen in terms of the children that do come to school so like, they're being i think sometimes anxiety but the ones that are really nervous the ones that you know will have the biggest anxiety about it never came back. I don't think, um, by and large, at least not that I saw or heard of, uh, whether key workers, um, children or not, because you know some key worker pa- um, parents did find alternatives even when given the opportunity to send their children to school, and when perhaps forced. You know, whether that be forced by the government in terms, of I think they're going to be reintroducing fines if they don't come back, or well, that's being forced by their parents no longer able to maintain whatever arrangements they had um, with childcare, forced to go back, and the, the sort of potential panic um, of those children, the potential um, difficulty with, yeah, with everyone, and just how much time there is in the day to wash the sheer number of children's hands across the school. I have no idea. I I'd, and you know, just
2: need like a kind of trench, like a sheep dip, like two kind of waist height sheep dip things. And as they walk in, they just dangle, they just dangle their hands in the in the bleach, and then by the other side, they're they're fine.
4: Or. Or just have handcuffs on the desks chain like their hands away from their faces <laughs> and away from themselves so the little hands they can write but they can't do anything that way you know unless they accidentally sneeze on themselves in which case you know the teacher can just wipe them down um, you wouldn't need to worry about whether or not their hands are grubby that could be i've
2: been asking for those handcuffs <laughs> for years actually
3: <laughs> i bet Boris johnson would be happy with that I think a system of, like, uh, retractable perspex cubes that have no bottom that just kind of slot down over the student, like, like one of those machines <laughs> at the bowling pin alley and then just raises up at the end of the list.
4: Don't they have them in China? <laughs> I'm sure that they have seen that in China. And like, yeah.
0: <laughs> I think... Uh- I think Canada's positing something similar but for those that want to have uh, clean sex so you've got like a bit of you've got a perspex sheet between you (laughs) and this is not a lie with a a glory hole um, cut out so you can enjoy yourselves whilst uh, maintaining... Uh, Covid hygiene So I mean something like that But without the need for a glory hole Obviously In the in the meeting we have with the head About
2: like what do we do How do we replace the behaviour system So obviously you can't send all the kids To the same small room If they're all ill uh, I said with a straight face And not completely joking Why don't we just make them sit outside uh, And everyone laughed As if that was a joke It's like come on It would work though wouldn't it Because the worst Normally the worse the weather is The more the kids play up if they had to go and sit outside in the like absolute pissing shitting rain then they wouldn't misbehave
3: yeah uh, It just sounds far sounds far too humane for me yeah. I just think yeah. we, gra- we gradually reduce the oxygen in their perspex cube and they just pass out <laughs> you just have a little a little valve
0: i think possibly one of the biggest um things that we're gonna face in september is like um slt saying yes we can't go back to the new normal um and everything is just like that. Uh, sorry, we can't go back to to normal. We need a new normal, and the new normal is just a version of the old normal. Um, but I know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say with more work, yeah, yeah with more work. Um, so I think it's probably one of the biggest problems we're going to face. But um, uh, yeah, anyway, on that cheery thought. Well, well I was just going to say. I think when when we do go back,
2: we'll have another. We'll do another uh, episode before we go back. But I do think you need to think. We need to be like positive about going back uh, in a way because it's gonna be really good to hang out with the kids again. That's gonna be fun. And I think the pressure we should there's gonna be pressure to succeed in these GCSEs. <laughs> but I'm just gonna say it now. It's gonna be a shit show and the the, the any school that's worried about it, it's like attainment gap. The attainment gap, you are not gonna fucking hit that man. The private schools right out the gate all the kids were doing like five hours of online zoom lessons a day. Like the, the, the league tables are going to be absolutely upside down. Like there's no way that you can be expected to do the impossible. So actually when the kids are coming in and they're having to do the kind of wiping down sanitation things like, yeah, let that take a bit of time and chat to the kids about how they are and, you know, try and re like, let's get out of the sausage factory a little bit and let's try and reclaim a bit of humanity. Cause God knows we need it and that's what I'm looking forward to doing is slacking off even more than I already do but like because it is it is completely justifiable completely justifiable and um you know I am not to take any books home because they might have coronavirus on so I won't be marking anything either so yeah
0: okay great uh yeah so I think making making room to talk to the students is um is going to be crucial because they're going to need that room um but yeah so looking forward to that in september um so i think that's everything for now So like Nick said, we'll probably be back um, with something before we go or before the majority of us go back to uh, school in September. Um, But in the meantime, can you please rate and follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes and all other good podcast apps um, and share us with anyone who might be interested um, and follow us on Twitter at RequiresPod. So all that remains uh, for us to say is have a good summer um, and that's bye from me and from the entire Requires Improvement team. Bye.
3: Bye, guys.